remember my grandma and grandpa being able to sing it in Swedish. I can't sing it in Swedish. My dad might be able to get through some. So, yeah, we Swedes started out as cannibals, but uh, Christ captured us. And uh, so there's a contribution that the church in Sweden has made to the rest of us uh, by the grace of God. So that's pretty, that's pretty special. Well, this morning we turn to the third momentous event that uh, the Holy Spirit through Luke emphasizes in the book of Acts, and he emphasizes it by repeated references to it, uh, even repeated narrations and descriptions of that event. The first, of course, is the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is promised in chapter 1 and described in chapter 2, and recalled by Peter in chapter 11 and chapter 15, echoed as well in a sense in chapter 8 with the outpouring of the Spirit on the Samaritans. Uh, The second event we looked at last night, uh, that is the capture of uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, a, a sworn and violent enemy of the gospel of Christ, whom Jesus would capture and turned into the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, now today, and and that, of course, we heard recorded in chapter 9, but Paul reports it again in chapters 22 and 26. Now this morning we come to the third event, which we hear first of all in chapter 10, and then immediately afterwards we hear a retelling of it by Peter in Jerusalem in chapter 11, and then in chapter 15 there's another reminder of it, again from the lips of Peter. This is the conversion of the Gentile household of a Roman army officer by the name of Cornelius. Um, I mentioned earlier in the week that uh, I think there's good indication that as far as Luke's record is concerned, there actually was a, a Gentile who had not been circumcised, probably at least, we don't know for sure, who actually had come to faith in Christ at an earlier point, and that's the Ethiopian eunuch to whom Philip shares the gospel from Isaiah 53 uh, back in chapter 8. And so Saul's conversion, as I mentioned last night, is kind of sandwiched between the conversion of these two Gentiles. But this is the momentous event because it's not uh, just an individual believer, as Philip was a deacon perhaps, or at least a, a recognized and ordained mercy ministry officer sharing the gospel there. Leader Philip will be called an evangelist, so we know that he has ministry of the word as well uh, as part of his qualification at some point in this history. But it's not just Philip now, but it's an apostle uh, who preaches here. And it's not an apostle alone, but he's accompanied by a group of Jewish believers who, when they return to Jerusalem and Peter is criticized for spending time with uncircumcised Gentiles, eating at their table. Uh, presumption is that they're not eating a kosher diet, uh, that they, he's eating things that were perhaps slain in an, un, uh, in a, in an illegitimate way, uh, um, that were unclean foods. Uh, when Peter's criticized, then it's not just Peter who can say, God has welcomed the Gentiles by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from circumcision, but it's Peter and these other Jewish believers who can say we all saw and we all heard that God acknowledged his acceptance of the Gentiles 
for the sake of Jesus, by means of faith, uh, by giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he gave to us at the beginning. So Peter recounts that narrative there, and, and this is the, the momentous narrative that Peter will come back to in chapter 15 when the church is again addressing the question, must we, should we impose the expectation that the Gentiles undergo circumcision and keep all the commands that God gave to Israel on Mount Sinai in order for them to be full-fledged members of the new covenant community? And the answer is a resounding no, uh, in part on the basis of Peter's reminder of what has happened here in Acts chapter 10. Now I'm going to do with this text precisely what Luke does not want us to do, and that is I'm going to skip some of the duplication uh, in the interests of time. Uh, you should read the whole of chapters 10 and 11 straight on through to have that repeated exposure to uh, these uh, this, these things uh, uh, bear in on your mind. Uh, so you'll hear not only once but twice about Peter's vision of uh, the sheet full of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. Uh, you hear not only once, in fact, not only once or twice, but several times about the vision of the angel sent to Cornelius to tell him to send for Peter, uh, if you read straight through chapters 10 and 11. Uh, but as I say, in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit here, and I will, I will read the verses that are uh, listed there in your outline, the first 20 verses of chapter 10, and then I want to skip over to Peter's sermon to Cornelius and his assembled friends uh, in verses 34 through 48. So it's still a, a sizable portion of reading from, for God's, from God's Word, but I want to place it before us as we hear it directly from the text of Scripture before we begin to reflect on it together. So hear now God's word beginning in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. 
and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion and upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So they invited, he invited them in to be his guests. And then we have in this next section the record of Peter's travel with them, the original greeting that uh, he receives from Cornelius, and Cornelius's record, again, of the vision that he received from the angel to tell him to send for Peter. And then we pick up reading again in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptize, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he, they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's Word. Let us ask His Holy Spirit, ask Him to send His Spirit to teach us from the Word breathed out by the Spirit. O oh God, our Father, we who are, uh, cannot trace our natural biological family tree back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob are so grateful to read this narrative 
of how you have made and are making, even this day, those from all the nations and to be, to be the spiritual seed of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, the unique seed of Abraham. Father, how thankful we are that you cleanse our hearts by faith, not by our efforts to keep your commands, not by our efforts to be faithful covenant keepers, for even Israel failed to keep covenant as they should have. None of us can, since the fall, keep covenant as we should in order to expect your blessing on the basis of our performance. But Father, we thank you that there is a covenant keeper who is absolutely faithful from start to finish, inside and out, not only in the actions of his hand, but in the motives of his heart, and that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the one in whose righteousness we stand, that his death in our place under our curse on the tree erases the record of our sin, and his covenant keeping in our place bestows upon us the record of his righteousness so that we stand before you assured of your favor, assured of your welcome, assured that Jesus, who is Lord of all, is the one who is our covenant head and representative before you, so that we, in him, are well-pleasing in your sight. What a wonderful gospel it is that you have preached to the Jew first, but also to us Gentiles. And together we approach you in the only way that we can, through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this great momentous event. We begin with the description of Cornelius, a good but illegal alien. I realize that the term illegal alien is a especially loaded term in our country, in fact, in our state. Illegal aliens. A lot of dispute, debate about all of that. Uh, I chose it deliberately, uh, not because uh, in every respect Cornelius fits uh, all of our images of those who are uh, in this country, in our country, in an undocumented way. But certainly, if you think about the perspective of a Jewish person in the first century, uh, Cornelius and all those whom he represented, the occupying forces of pagan Rome, had no right to be in God's land. Cornelius, in fact, is identified in terms of his service with the Italian cohort, uh, the cohort especially associated with Italy, with the capital itself, posted out here on the Eastern Empire to try to keep those unruly Jewish people under the thumb of Rome. They tended to be troublesome. They tended to think that uh, they were not obligated to serve Caesar as the supreme expression of divine power on the earth. The Jewish people tended to think they had a new, a, a true and living God who trumped Caesar, uh, who had a claim on them that was beyond Caesar's claim. Though um, the Romans and the Greeks and others were uh, a lot like a lot of folks in our culture, they could be pretty open-minded, pluralistic. Different folks have different strokes and different gods, as a matter of fact. They were okay with that. Uh, the Jewish people were a little stubborn about insisting that their God was the God of the whole earth and the God to whom all peoples were accountable. 
Uh, but the Romans could sort of dismiss them still. Well, you might think that Cornelius was that kind of Roman, but Luke hastens to tell us he wasn't. He wasn't simply an arrogant pagan. He was one who, through whatever means God chose, had been brought to be a God-fearer. That was a category of Gentiles in the Jewish mind of the first century. There were Gentiles who were so convinced that the true and living God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was uh, the, the only God to, worthy of worship, the creator of the universe and the Lord of all, that they became full converts to Judaism. I mentioned earlier this week, typically the term proselyte is used to apply to them. Cornelius is not quite in that category. The, he is what the Jewish people would call a God-fearer. The God-fearers typically held to the faith in the one God, the God of Israel, as the only true and living God. Typically, they would try to observe the Ten Commandments, but typically they would balk at submitting to circumcision. The Jewish historian Josephus tells the story about Izates, who was the king of a little kingdom called Adiabene in the Mesopotamian region out to the east. And Izates was introduced to the, 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 the faith of Israel, to the true and the living God, uh, by a traveling rabbi who had persuaded his mother, the queen mother, uh, that, uh, is, that uh, the Lord is the true and the living God. Um, well, Izates was also persuaded, and he wanted to be circumcised. Uh, but the, the rabbi was a little nervous about this, so Josephus says, because he's circumcision was, uh, as a physical right, was viewed as a kind of a foreign superstition by the people of Adiabene. And so the rabbi and even Izati's mother said, no, you don't really need to be circumcised. You can, you, know, you can follow God pretty well if you follow the Ten Commandments. You don't need to be circumcised. God will forgive you. Um, and uh, so for the time being, Izati's is persuaded. But then a, a, a true blue rabbi comes through and he says, no, if you are not circumcised, you can't begin to follow the God of Israel. Circumcision is the starting point of being a true follower of the God of Israel. You must become a proselyte. Azadis submits to circumcision, and Josephus records, because he is a Pharisee, and he's pretty true blue, although he has some good associations with the Romans later on, but uh, he records with, with, with a great satisfaction that there was no uproar and God blessed his audience further for that uh, as well. Uh, but that illustrates that there are these sort of two levels of, of Gentiles who are being attracted to the faith of Israel. Cornelius is not a full convert, as Peter will be reminded at the beginning of chapter 11 when he returns to Jerusalem those people that you stayed with in Caesarea, Cornelius and his household, are people who have uncircumcision. It almost seems like a disease, the way it's described there. They are uncircumcised. How could you do that? Don't you know that they wouldn't keep the kosher laws given to us in the book of Leviticus? Don't you know that they wouldn't be concerned about the boundary between clean and unclean things? How could you do that? So Cornelius is attracted to the Lord and to his people and at some level is convinced that the Lord is the true and the living God but he's not 
submitted to circumcision. He is a God-fearer. And his fear of God is demonstrated, you see, in that he gives alms to the people, as well as praying continually to God. In fact, as, as Luke tells us here, he's praying at the ninth hour, which Luke reminded us in the third chapter was when Peter and John were going up to the temple, three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour from daybreak, roughly, the time of the evening sacrifice. So even though he's in Caesarea, Caesarea is on the coast. It was the city built in honor of Julius Caesar by Herod the Great. Herod was one of Julius Caesar's allies that helped Caesar to take over uh, the Eastern Empire. Uh, and it became the provincial capital. Uh, the Roman governors preferred to stay at Caesarea, not only because Jerusalem was hotter, muggier, and Caesarea was right on the coast, uh, but also because it was a more urbane, international type of city. So even though Cornelius is posted there at Caesarea on the coast, he's thinking about the temple in Jerusalem in his own prayer life. And his prayer life at, nine, at, at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, is keyed in with what's going on at the temple. And he's generous to the people of God. I mentioned, I think, in the connection between Luke's Gospel and Acts, that uh, in many ways he's described like the army officer, another centurion, uh, who, uh, is, uh, whom Jesus encounters in the Gospel in chapter 7, the centurion whose servant is desperately ill and who sends leaders, representatives of the Jewish community to Jesus. And uh, they are, because he's been so generous with the people, they go to Jesus, happy to do so, and they plead with Jesus to go to this man's house to heal the servant. They say, he is worthy to have you do this miracle of healing for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. But, interestingly, when he was within eyesight of the house and the centurion saw that Jesus was actually going to come to his house, the centurion sent other friends out and said, Lord, please don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. If you just say the word, I know that this illness which has brought my servant to the brink of death has to retreat because I know what it is to be able to give orders and expect obedience. I'm a military man. I know that. And Jesus, I know that you have the authority to give an order to this disease and expect it to obey and retreat. And, of course, Jesus heals him. Interesting contrast, isn't it? The Jewish leaders look at this man's behavior and his generosity and they say, Jesus, he deserves it. He's worthy to have you perform this miracle for him. He himself knows himself better than that. And he disagrees with the Jewish leaders. He says, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. I'm asking for sheer grace, but I know I'm not worthy to expect it or demand it. It's all a matter of your gift and your grace. Well, Cornelius, likewise, begins, interestingly, in these narratives and these retellings of the Cornelius account in chapters 10 and 11, we begin with the spotlight on the fruit of whatever the Spirit is mysteriously doing in his heart uh, that looks 
worthy, that looks righteous and good, and it is righteous and good, in that he's praying, in that he is giving alms to the people. Uh, There's something worthwhile there. The angel himself says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Your prayers, what is he praying for? Well, he's praying to come to know the living God in a deeper way. This language of coming up before God, prayers coming up before God, is the language that comes out of the book of Exodus when God says that the prayers of his people in their suffering and in their sorrow and in their slavery in Egypt have come up before his face. And this language of memorial is the language that is used of some of the sacrifices in Leviticus. An appeal to God for mercy, for help, for rescue, for forgiveness. So the alms themselves and the prayers as well are not leverage that Cornelius is trying to use to get God to give him grace, They are appeals for the mercy of God. Not achievements of self-righteousness, but expressions of a heart cry for rescue and for atonement. And so as things are retold throughout these two chapters, we find more and more focus turned away from Cornelius' evidences of the Spirit at work in him and more toward what he needs. And so, for example, he's told that he's to send for Simon Peter. And later on we read that we are to, uh, that he's to send for Simon Peter because Simon Peter has a message. Verse 22, send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. And that uh, Cornelius himself um, says in verse 33, I've sent for you, Simon, uh, you've been kind enough to come. Now we are here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. What you have to say is something that the Lord has to say to us. And then over in chapter 11, verse 14, we're told that the angel, we're not told this in chapter 10, but we get more information as things go on, that the angel told him, uh, send for Simon Peter, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now as I say, I don't think Luke gives us enough evidence for us to be able to trace the secret work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of Cornelius. If we want to ask the question, when was Cornelius born anew by the power of the Spirit? It's a little hard to tell. But clearly, he has a sense of needing salvation and assurance that leads him, because of the angel's promise, to send for Simon Peter. He's not one who is righteous in his own works. He's one who needs the message of the gospel. And so, in response, in obedience, he sends for Simon Peter by, the, by means of two servants and, uh, and a, a soldier who apparently is also a God fearer, who's described as devout as well. And as they are en route, God also sends a vision to Simon Peter to prepare him for this. Interesting. The previous chapter, Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus in radiant splendor, blinding light. And then, Jesus appeared to Ananias of Damascus to prepare Ananias to go to preach to Saul of Tarsus, a very unlikely convert, as we talked about last night. 
hardly the kind of person we would expect to be a preacher of the gospel, Saul of Tarsus, who hates the message of the grace of God in the cross of Christ. So God knows that Ananias needs special intervention to persuade him to go and to preach to to, Anani- to, uh, to Saul. Likewise here, God sends the message to Cornelius, you need to hear a message. You need to hear a message that uh, is the message that Simon called Peter will bring to you. And now God lays the foundation with Simon Peter by sending him this strange vision, disturbing vision. Peter is on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa overlooking the sea. And uh, he uh, is hungry. He's waiting for lunch to be prepared as he's praying, and God apparently uses that hunger as, the, uh, to, as an occasion for the object lesson that God gives. And suddenly he sees in a vision, heaven opened. That's, that's the language that is uh, often used in the Bible to describe special revelations of God and of his, his glory. Heaven was opened when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, Luke 3.21. Heaven was what Stephen saw opened at his martyrdom, and he saw the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the Father's right hand, bearing witness on Stephen's behalf to his faith, expressed in faithfulness and witness even to the point of death, even as Stephen was being accused by false witnesses on earth, Stephen saw Jesus as the true witness on his behalf in heaven. And of course in the book of Revelation, John's visions in chapter 4 and 19, and actually elsewhere, but I just put those in your, in your outline, begin with heaven opened, an indication of the revelation of God. Coming out of heaven, Peter sees this huge sheet full of all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds, every variety of livestock and wildlife that God created as described in Genesis 1 and as preserved from the flood of judgment by Noah in the ark. There is a distinction though. You may remember that in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 when Noah is told to bring the animals into the ark, he's to bring seven of each clean animal and one pair of each unclean animal even before God set out all the detailed regulations about the distinction between clean and unclean animals in the book of Leviticus before uh, given to Moses on, on Mount Sinai, God is making a distinction here. And there's a distinction in the ark between clean and unclean animal animals. But in this sheet, this vision given to Simon Peter, there's no distinction. There are cows, clean animals... Uh, there are sheep, clean animals, and there are pigs, unclean animals. There are fish that have scales, I guess, and there are my favorite seafood, scallops, which are unclean animals. I'm glad Peter got this vision. I love scallops. That's not the point of the vision, though. You can eat lobster and scallops. That's not the point. But all the animals together, and God says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, No way, Lord! Now I mentioned in connection with some of these articles, I think it's interesting, that combination. There's a, there's a logical disjunction there to call Jesus Lord and then to say you're wrong in the same sentence. Uh, but he does. May it never be. The, the Greek word is a very 
vivid uh, adverb. Metamos. Never ever, Lord. Never ever. I've never eaten anything unclean. Ezekiel chapter 4. What? Ezekiel chapter 4. Yes, Ezekiel chapter 4. God commands Ezekiel to do a kind of a prophetic object lesson, to make a little model of Jerusalem, and then put up siege works against it, because he is to vividly, in an object lesson form, prophesy the siege and the fall of Jerusalem. He himself has already been carried off into captivity into Babylon, but the the city itself has not yet been destroyed. And uh, he's to lie down there and watch as the city is besieged for 390 days. That's a rather tedious task for over a year as a prophet. But he's to illustrate uh, the suffering and ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem. But not only that, but also that God, in a sense, is going to in judgment, remove that protective boundary that has kept his people separate from the nations. And so along with with this little object lesson about the model of Jerusalem, there's a second object lesson commanded in verse 9. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. How many of you bought Ezekiel 4.9 bread at the grocery store? Yeah, we have two, right? And you've read all the cover on it about how all the combination of these grains are so good for you and so on. The thing is, this is a judgment recipe. That's what it is. Mix all of these grains together. The very thing that Israel was not to do in their own fields when they planted Now God says, mix it all together, clean and unclean, mix it all together. And then, worse than that, during the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. Your food that you shall eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels. Water you shall drink, eat it it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Verse 12, see that? And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I, Ezekiel said, Ah, Lord God. Well, ESV is okay with that. But it's really a strong negative. And the translators of the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate that Hebrew word that here is translated ah into the Greek word Metamos, never ever, Lord God. Behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up until now. I've never eaten with died by itself or was torn by beasts or has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. So the Lord said, Okay, not human dung, only cow's dung, not so unclean. But still, the recipe is unclean. And the point of that object lesson was, because my people have not honored by name and not lived as my holy people, I'm going to make them very much like all the other nations. I'm going to remove the protections that have set them apart. And Peter echoes Ezekiel's protest precisely. 
Lord, I can't eat that unclean food. Don't you know I'm part of your special people, your holy people, set apart by your law to be your holy people. So Peter protests, by no means, Lord. And God says, what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean. Now you see something something different is happening here. In Ezekiel's day, God has taken his people, which he had set apart as ritually clean through those dietary laws, and he's saying, I'm taking my once clean people, and because they're spiritually defiled, I'm going to make them, as it were, unclean like the nations. Now, Peter doesn't get it instantly, but by the time he gets to Cornelius' house, he does get it. Peter understands that God's statement, what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean, means that God's doing, in a sense, the opposite. Now, instead of God taking his clean people and making them unclean like the nations, God says, I'm going to take unclean Gentiles and I'm going to make them clean like my people by faith in my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that also God is removing the dietary laws. But Peter, and in fact it's his reflection that according to early church tradition is especially preserved for us in Mark's Gospel, Peter had already in effect heard Jesus remove the dietary laws and restrictions. In Mark chapter 7 when he said, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of a person's mouth that makes a person unclean because that expresses what's going on in the heart, the murder and the lust and the uncleanness of our hearts. And interestingly, in Mark's Gospel, there's this little parenthetical comment. I wonder if it was because Mark heard Peter in his preaching and preserved it in his Gospel by the inspiration of the Spirit. In that statement, it's not what goes into the mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out. Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. Uh... In any case, the Holy Spirit's saying that, even if it wasn't Peter's reflection in preaching. And I wonder if Peter, in listening, uh, in, in, in reflecting back on these words of Jesus in his earthly ministry, was saying, oh, I get it now. That's what the vision uh, on Joppa was all about. But it's more than that. It's not just about diet. It's about all kinds of people. Because when Peter gets to Cornelius' house, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's actually in the part I skipped over. See, you can't skip this stuff. That's in Acts 10.28. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He's gotten the point. He's gotten the point of the command, the threefold command. You know, three times over, God said, kill and eat. And three times over, Peter said, no way. And three times over, God said, what I've cleansed, you must not call unclean. The point is finally... Made The repetition of this special revelation has made the point. And not only that, by the time Peter's arrived at Cornelius' house, he's realized God can cleanse people by faith, even apart from the boundary markers that set Israel off from the nations. Circumcision, the dietary laws, observance of the feasts, and so on. God cleanses people by trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. God has overcome the resistance of Simon, son of Jonah, about preaching to the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Remember, that is, you know, Jonah was Simon's father, and 
Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah. He's not called that here, but here, but we are invited to remember that. Simon, son of Jonah, is in Joppa, and God tells him to preach to Gentiles, representative of the forces that threaten the very welfare of Israel. Kind of makes you think of that other Jonah who went to Joppa when God told him, I want you to preach my grace to Nineveh, the capital of a pagan power that was threatening the welfare of Israel. Uh, now, Jonah tried to run further than Simon, son of Jonah, did, uh, and ended up in the belly of a great fish, and finally was captured by grace himself in his own heart. But it's interesting, uh, the parallels there as well. But God is saying here, I'm now setting my people apart by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, you can eat with these Gentiles, enjoy fellowship with these Gentiles, because I'm purifying them by faith. The issue was not menu, but men and women. The issue was not the kosher food laws in themselves, but it was the people who would be excluded by those food laws, since in the ancient Near East, as in many traditional cultures, to eat with people was the in a sense, the closest form of intimate fellowship. And now Peter is free to eat with these people as he preaches to them the message that God has given to him to preach. And so that does lead us to the sermon, Peter's mission to the nations, verses 34 and following. As Peter goes, told not to hesitate or discriminate, that particular term appears several times. I've given you the references here in the outline, uh, in various ways, not to make a difference between himself and the Gentiles. Um, Peter and his companions, who will be eyewitnesses of God's welcome, travel to Caesarea, up the coast, and as Cornelius gathers his friends and relations there, they are ready to hear the word of God. I should say a word about friends here. Uh, Cornelius has gathered his friends, uh, close friends, it said. The, the, the friends were not just buddies, uh, especially in the, in the hierarchy of the Roman uh, structure. Friends were often those who were dependent upon a powerful person for uh, financial advancement or political advancement or military advancement. Uh, so uh, when Cornelius said... You're my friend, I want you at my house at this time. It wasn't just because he and they all expected good fellowship. It was like the boss saying, you will come to the party that I'm hosting. Uh, so Cornelius is really using his opportunity and influence to expose others uh, in his sphere of influence to the gospel. And uh, as we see here, when Peter comes in, Cornelius falls at his feet Peter uh, explains that uh, he falls at his feet almost as a, a kind of a fulfillment of Isaiah 45, verse 14, where in Isaiah uh, the Lord says that the nations will fall down before you and confess that God is really uh, among you. And then Peter begins to, to explain and to preach uh, the message of the gospel. <clears throat> And as he preaches, you see his points. I've put them out there in the outline under point D. First of all, he says, I realize now that God doesn't play favorites. 
I realize that God shows favoritism along... It does, I realize that God does not show favoritism along ethnic lines. Now, this is, this is enormous. This is amazing for one who is Jewish. Uh, however faithfully or unfaithfully he observed all the commands of God... At least Peter would say, I kept the laws related to ceremonial diet uh, unflinchingly. And uh, for Peter and any of the original disciples to say God welcomes Gentiles is an amazing thing. And yet, even that truth is embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy 10 Moses, commanding the people of God with the law of God, said, You're not to show favoritism or bias against the alien and in favor of the Israelite in justice because the Lord your God shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. God does not play favorites. Anyone who does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, what does Peter mean by that? Keep the law and God will be pleased with you? Well, that would contradict the message that he's about to preach, that there's forgiveness in Jesus' name for our sins. No, his point is that God's, that the fruit of faith, the fruit of the grace of God in people's life is evident, and that is not something that's going to be distributed and is distributed only along ethnic lines any longer. There's good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The ESV and some of the other versions kind of puts that in parenthesis uh, because it seems like it's kind of a byway. It seems like it's not the main point. Why does Peter say Jesus is Lord of all? Because Peter is beginning to realize that Jesus is the Savior, not only of Israel, not only the Messiah for Israel, but he's the Savior of the whole earth. He may be alluding to the Shema, that confession that Israel made by the command of God from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We know that Paul uses that expression in Romans 3, verses 29 and 30, to explain how God is not only the God of the Israelites, but also the God of the Gentiles, because God is one. Here the confession is Jesus is Lord of all. And then Peter recounts in brief form the ministry of Jesus in his earthly ministry, uh, his baptism by John, John's baptism, and then Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit anointed for his work in his baptism by John, his healing ministry, uh, that Peter and the other apostles are witnesses of all that he did, And then in contrast to all the good that Jesus did, in verse 30, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. We've heard that word before, the tree. It's the echo of Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. He was executed as one who is under the curse of God. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. He did endure the curse of God, but it was not the curse he deserved. As Paul would say, as we saw last night in Galatians 3, it was the curse we deserved that he bore on the tree 
And God declared Jesus righteousness and innocent by raising him from the dead and causing him to appear to us, the apostles who are his eyewitnesses. And we are to preach, to preach and testify that he is the one appointed as the judge. We'll come back to that theme of Jesus as judge at a later point when we look at Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. And as the judge, he is also the one who bestows the forgiveness of sins. In chapter 11, when Peter tells the story over again, he says, I was just beginning to speak when suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on everybody. And I have on my bookshelf a critical scholar's commentary, a German scholar by the name of Henschen, who says, obviously, whoever wrote to Acts 10 and 11 didn't really pay much attention because in chapter 11 he says Peter was just beginning to speak and in chapter 10 it looks like he's got a whole sermon here. I respectfully disagree. Peter really only got started and I think you can see that from the wording in verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What would have followed at this point? Quotations from the prophets, right? Just the way the pattern that we've seen in the other sermons in the, in the book of Acts, there would be a quotation of prophets. Peter knows that Cornelius, at least, as a God-fearer, is attuned to the scriptures of the Old Testament. And he is ready to demonstrate from the prophets that Jesus is the one who has suffered so that we can receive forgiveness of sins in his name. But Peter doesn't have to do it. Because that mention of believing in the name of Jesus on the basis of what's already been said about Jesus' ministry and is being hanged on a tree, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is all the information that Cornelius and those believers need and the Spirit immediately falls upon them and imparts to them new life, imparts to them the faith to receive the power and the life of the Holy Spirit, and to be forgiven of their sins through Jesus' name. And so we have what I've called here in the outline the Gentiles' Pentecost. There are a lot of echoes that uh, of particular words, and I've given you some of them here. The Spirit fell on them. That's an echo more of the language when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit as Peter and John prayed for them in Acts 8. The Spirit is the gift of God, a free gift of grace, echoing Peter's words in Acts 2.38. The Spirit was poured out on these believers as He was poured out on the assembled believers praying and waiting for the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit evidenced His presence in their lives by enabling them to speak in other languages and to declare the mighty deeds of God. Extolling God is related to that statement in Acts 2 that they were declaring the mighty deeds of God. And interestingly, in both of these cases, there are onlookers, observers, who are amazed. In Acts 2... The people who are hearing the mighty deeds of God preached in all the languages of the ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean world are amazed. How could these Galileans learn all these languages? Here, it's Peter's companions 
who are amazed. Verse 45, the believers from among the circumcised, those who had come with Peter from Joppa, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so, of course, it was only appropriate if God had welcomed these people in by giving them faith in Jesus Christ to trust in the promises of God, it was only appropriate that the church then respond by applying the sign of their reception into the covenant community, the sign of baptism with water in Jesus' name. Interesting the way Peter puts it in verse 47, isn't it? Can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people? That sounds like a kind of a negative way to put it. But you see, what that's, that anticipates the fact that there's going to be resistance to welcoming Gentiles without their going, undergoing circumcision. But Peter says, how can we stand in God's way? That's what he says, actually, in chapter 11, when he says, if God welcomed them, who was I to resist God? Who was I to stand in God's way? Chapter 11, verse 17. Who can stand in the way of God when he wills to embrace all the nations of the earth in his grace by the mercy of the gospel brought home to people's hearts in the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit? As Peter says in chapter 11, verse 15, God gave the Holy Spirit the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, that was 17, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning, at the day of Pentecost. The giving of the Spirit to equip the whole church of God, the whole people of God, to build the church as the dwelling of God in the Spirit is extended out from those beginning Jewish believers praying and waiting for the Spirit as Jesus told them to, the celebration of His coronation on the day of the first fruits, the outpouring of the Spirit so that all the nations could hear the Gospel in their own languages that day, to Samaria, we haven't talked a lot about the Samaritans, but they were those folks on the border between Judaism and paganism. They held to the Pentateuch, but not to the rest of the Old Testament. They worshipped the Lord and were respected by many of the rabbis for holding to the commandments. But the Samaritans also had some unsavory background uh, in that they were more than willing to worship the gods of the Greeks if it was politically expedient on Mount Gerizim. And they did not come to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to worship as they should have been. Uh, So they were between, betwixt and between, and yet God through Philip and through Peter and John welcomed them. But now we have Gentiles that are really outside, not circumcised, welcomed in because God is extending his kingdom to all sorts of people, breaking down walls and gathering in people by the grace of the gospel alone, by the mercy of God extended to Jesus Christ, to us through Jesus Christ in his cross. We're going to hear Paul preach to a mixed group in the next session this morning and emphasize that the gospel of God's grace in Christ does for us, Jew and Gentile, what the law could never have done for any of us in our weakness, in our fallenness, in our twistedness. It's all the gift of God's grace and received by faith in Christ alone. Well, 
I've brought us right up to our hour. Some of these times I'm planning on a Q&A time, although I haven't gotten any questions yet on cards, but it won't be this hour. So let me lead us in prayer as we close, and we'll have a time of fellowship and, and then be back in here in about 15 minutes. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we thank you that you now cleanse all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, from all ethnic groups and races, from unsavory histories in paganism and self-centeredness. You cleanse our hearts by the power of the Spirit bringing us out of death and into life and imparting to us that wonderful gift that only the Spirit can give, faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. So we look away from ourselves, away from our background, away from our achievements, away from our efforts, and we fix our hopes and our rest our confidence in Jesus and receive from Him the cleansing of our conscience, the renewal of our hearts, and the joy of assurance that we are your beloved children now, all for Jesus' sake. Father, thank you that that comes to all of us and makes us all one family now, with all of our differences, one family, by virtue of your grace in the gospel. Teach us what that means in our relationships with each other, in our passion to see the gospel extend to the ends of the earth. Teach us what that means in terms of our own struggles of conscience, be reminded that our, assur- our assurance of your favor does not rest on our track record, but it rests on the perfect achievement of Jesus himself. We pray in his name. Amen.